This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. August 6th, 1945. American bomber planes dropped the atomic bomb on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. Three days later, they detonate another one over Nagasaki. It was the first and last time atomic weapons were used in war. The atom bomb's devastating effectiveness showed that the world of warfare was entering a new era, one driven more by science than soldiers. The United States and the Soviet Union worked together during the war to defeat Nazi Germany. But just a few short months later, both countries were racing to capture German scientists in order to benefit from the advanced technology that the Nazis had used during the war. For the U.S. government, this effort was called Operation Paperclip. It provided the United States with the mines, the research, and much of the technology that would eventually allow them to send astronauts to the moon. But there has always been a dark side to paperclip. Decades after the operation first commenced, we are still learning about the extent to which known Nazi war criminals use paperclip to escape prosecution for their crimes. The United States reaped incredible benefits from the scientific expertise of the paperclip scientists. But at what cost? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. And if you enjoy the show, don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps us. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. This is our second and final episode on the conspiracy theories surrounding Operation Paperclip. Last week, we covered the official story. We looked into the U.S. government's official stance that Operation Paperclip was a small post-war operation that only recruited scientists who were not Nazi officers. 
We also looked into some more disturbing facts about the American scientific initiatives that stemmed from paperclip scientists. This week, we're discussing some of the main conspiracy theories surrounding the operation. Conspiracy theory number one. The United States government knowingly recruited Nazi war criminals through Operation Paperclip and covered it up. Number two, Werner von Braun, the man who is credited with being the man behind the success of the moon landing, was a Nazi war criminal himself. And three, Operation Paperclip was actually orchestrated by a group of globalists in order to guide the progress of aerospace technology. As with our last episode, we're going to be addressing some graphic depictions of Nazi war crimes. Officially, Operation Paperclip was a semi-covert effort by the Allied Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency, and later the American Central Intelligence Agency, to extract captured German scientists and use their expertise to advance American scientific endeavors. The operation was framed as a massive military success, largely due to the contributions made by Dr. Werner von Braun and his engineering team to NASA and American space technology in the 1950s and 60s. The official directive of Operation Paperclip was defined by President Truman when he first approved the operation in 1946. Paperclip operatives were prohibited from recruiting ardent Nazis or Nazi officers. It was a mandate that seems to have been utterly ignored. Since the details of the operation were first made public in 1946, Paperclip has been synonymous with a gateway that allowed Nazis, including SS officers and war criminals, to make a safe home in the United States. Our first conspiracy theory states that U.S. officials knowingly and even intentionally recruited Nazi criminals and adopted their inhumane experimental practices in the United States. Well, there's a lot to unpack here. Make no mistake, this isn't a question of if. Nazi criminals undoubtedly made it to America and escaped punishment as a direct result of paperclip. What we're discussing here is whether this was a matter of incompetence apathy, or something more sinister. Deniability has been the ultimate tool used by the U.S. government whenever it's pressed about the Nazi criminals who benefited from paperclip. Last episode, we talked about some of the prominent Germans who came to America through paperclip that were later revealed to be Nazi scientists and criminals. One of them, Hubertus Strughold, helped invent and improve the suits used by astronauts. However, the research that led him to develop this technology came from horrific oxygen deprivation experiments performed on concentration camp prisoners. The U.S. Justice Department and the FBI investigated Strughold a number of times and claimed to find no evidence linking him to Nazi activities. That is, until several years after he died, when the government released declassified documents from 1945, which listed Strughold as a potential war criminal wanted for questioning by Army officials. Did the classified designation on this information simply prevent the FBI from discovering it? Or was there more at work in suppressing the link between the U.S. government and the Nazis it helped? Strughold's far from the only case like this. 
Cherim Supsikov was publicly outed as a Nazi by American News. His lawsuit against CBS and the New York Times was actually supported by prominent American politicians. 20 years after Subzikov was killed in a revenge bombing, declassified documents confirmed that he had worked with Nazi death squads to execute Russian and Jewish soldiers. The officials who authored the document knew this because Subzikov had told them when he was first captured in 1945. We could spend this whole episode just talking about examples of men like this, who lived comfortable lives in America despite the existence of classified documents confirming their guilt. But there is one man whose post-World War II journey might singularly define the clandestine and morally questionable attitude that made paperclips such a success. We're talking about Georg Ricky. We discussed last week how Ricky was one of the only paperclip scientists to be tried for war crimes. We also raised the question of how on earth it came to be that Ricky, an accused war criminal, had to be extradited from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio when he was indicted. Well, the answer doesn't exactly give the impression that American Army officials were thoroughly vetting the people they were recommending for paperclip in the 1940s. The official background is that the charge against Ricky was tied to his position as the director of the Middlewerk factory. He oversaw the production of Germans' advanced V-2 rockets, which had been invented by Werner von Braun and were used to deadly effectiveness against the Allies during the war. During the initial months of paperclip, intel on the V-2 technology was one of the highest priorities for U.S. officials. The Middlewerk factory employed slave labor from the nearby Middlebau Dora concentration camp. Thousands of the Jewish and European slave workers died due to inhumane working conditions. Among those deaths were reports of gruesome executions ordered or even potentially carried out by Ricky and his fellow Nazi officers at the plant. In 1945, Ricky was captured by Colonel Peter Beasley. Beasley had Ricky on a list of potential targets due to his involvement at the Middlewerk plant. This was in the earliest months of Operation Paperclip, and Army operatives had a prime objective, capture anyone who might have information on the German V-2 rocket. Beasley and Ricky reportedly had a friendly relationship, as they each had something the other person wanted. Ricky wanted safe asylum and employment in the United States, and Beasley wanted the dozens of boxes of files that Ricky had taken when he fled the Middlewerk camp. They both got what they wanted. Beasley's official account was that he was only aware that he had captured a high-ranking German scientist and valuable German research for the U.S. government. It is unknown whether Beasley knew what Ricky was guilty of. It's unclear if Beasley or his colleagues suspected that the files might contain damning evidence. Beasley may have just been so focused on obtaining the V2 research that he failed to consider Ricky's files might very well contain proof of Ricky's and others' crimes at the Middlewerk plant. Or he may have known and simply disregarded that possibility. As far as conspiracy goes, both are likely. It's impossible to know since most of the documents Ricky brought with him to America were lost shortly after. Once Ricky arrived at the Wright Air Force Base in 1946, he was given the task of transcribing the documents for his American captors. 
he often did this work by himself, with no supervision. So Ricky was just left alone with piles of documents that may or may not have incriminated him as a war criminal? Like I said, regardless of whether this was a conspiracy or just an oversight, it's not a great look for the officials who were overseeing Paperclip at that time. Well, you'd think that they could have found someone else who spoke German to translate all that material. Well, it wasn't just a matter of language. These were complex schematics and research files, some of which would have likely only made sense to the people who were working directly on the projects. The Army needed these files to be transposed in a way that would allow non-engineers to understand them. Ricky was, by all accounts, confident and charismatic. As one of the first Germans to arrive in America through Paperclip, it's easy to imagine that he convinced his superiors that he was the only person qualified for the job. This case makes you wonder about whether other evidence might have been lost or destroyed due to similar oversights. Well, if army officials wanted to erase proof that the men they had provided with homes and jobs were Nazi war criminals, it's not the worst way to go about it. It's easier to deny that you destroyed sensitive documents if you never saw those documents in the first place. The question about Ricky and this conspiracy as a whole, who knew what? And when did they know it? Surely someone in the U.S. brass had to know or at least suspect what Ricky had done during this initial period where he was being courted and transferred. Research gets a little messy here in regards to who was talking to whom. We know that while Beasley and his team were hunting intel on the V-2 rockets, other U.S. intel teams were already looking into the crimes committed at Middlewerk and the nearby concentration camps. We know that the liberated prisoners told their American rescuers that they had been abused by their Nazi captors. And we know of at least one instance where one of the Nazis captured at Middlewerk named Ricky as one of the men responsible for what had transpired at the factory. What we're less clear on is when this information made it to the team in charge of handling Ricky's extraction and settlement in America. This case emphasizes the fact that there were split factions among the military and government in regards to how to best handle the Nazi scientist problem. Though it became evident that Ricky was likely being protected by someone in charge at Fort Wright, don't forget that the American government did eventually extradite him to face trial. But that might not have even happened if it weren't for the help of his fellow Germans. Hermann Nelson, a German paperclip scientist who was with Ricky at Fort Wright in 1946, wrote a letter to his American commanders about the rumors he had heard. He wrote about the frequent hangings at the Middlewerk plant and how late at night, while he was drinking with his fellow paperclip scientist over a game of cards, Ricky would brag about being the one to give the orders. Ricky was a proud man. He would often brag about his position as the head of the factory. But it took seven months before the army even assigned someone to investigate the claim. Maybe they were unsure of how to handle this information in a way that didn't incriminate themselves. Or maybe someone involved in the investigation already knew. We don't know how the discussion on what to do about Ricky went behind the closed doors of the army intelligence offices 70 years ago. But we do know that in May of 1947, Major Eugene Smith was sent to the Wright Air Force Base to interview Ricky. It didn't take long for Smith to find the evidence he needed. 
Less than two weeks after he arrived at Wright, he gave the order for Ricky to be sent back to Germany to be tried in the Nuremberg trials. The drama around Ricky's case didn't end there. Once he was in Germany, Ricky's attorney demanded that Ricky's fellow scientists from Wright, including Werner von Braun and Arthur Rudolph, be sent to Germany to testify at Ricky's trial. This could potentially be a serious problem for the army. The circumstances of Ricky's move back to Germany were embarrassing enough, but they could not afford to send other scientists to his trial where his or their testimony might implicate them and prevent them from returning to the United States. Army officials responded that Von Braun was too valuable and that sending him to Europe would put him at risk of being kidnapped by Soviet operatives. This may have actually helped Ricky in the long run. The prosecution could have easily used his fellow scientists' testimony against him. Without that testimony, and with the documents that Ricky brought with him from Middlewerk, which he later lost, Ricky was acquitted. Hmm. Was it due to lack of evidence, as the official story goes? or suppression of evidence, given that Ricky had the opportunity to destroy incriminating documents and scientists with inside knowledge like Von Braun never testified. Either way, the publicity around the trials ensured that Ricky would never be able to return to America. But his brief time living and working on U.S. soil illuminates a concerning trend of U.S. officials intentionally hindering investigations into the scientists they had employed through paperclip. Ricky is one of the more public examples of U.S. military and intelligence officials' complicated relationship with known Nazis and Nazi criminals, but it's far from the only one. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now back to the story. The evidence in support of our first conspiracy theory that American officials knowingly and intentionally looked the other way when bringing Nazi scientists into the country after World War II is, well, I'm trying to find a stronger word than overwhelming. Arthur Rudolph was another official at the Middlewerk plant. He worked extensively with Ricky and was later implicated for his part in the crimes that went on at the Middlewerk plant. One third of the people at Middleburg died of exposure and starvation, uh, that he was responsible. He knew what was going on. Sir, whether he was aware or not, does he deserve a fair trial? He's received a fair trial. That's a clip on Rudolph and his crimes from 1990, nearly 50 years after he left Middleburg. Rudolph spent decades working for Von Braun, earning several honors and awards from NASA and the U.S. government. Eli Rosenbaum, the famed Nazi hunter of the U.S. Justice Department, came across Rudolph's case by accident. He had been reading a book on the history of American rocketry, which contained a footnote associating Rudolph with Nazi war crimes. In 1983, Rudolph renounced his U.S. citizenship and left the country. In exchange, his wife and daughter were allowed to stay in the U.S., and even then, it took several years for the government to completely strip away his honors and other awards they had bestowed on him for his service to our country. The list and the crimes goes on and on. So the conspiracy theory that the U.S., or at least some men in positions of power over Operation Paperclip, knew that they were recruiting known Nazis and did so in direct defiance of a presidential order is... I have to say, for the first time, it's easily a 10 out of 10 for me. 
There are just too many examples of men benefiting from paperclip to escape prosecution for war crimes. The repeated instances of bureaucratic manipulation that led to these men being allowed in the country in the first place is evidence enough. This isn't a case of some bad apples making it in with a crowd of otherwise innocent scientists. At some point, in some high level of power with the United States government, a decision was made to disregard or even cover up the crimes these men had committed in the interest of national security. And once these men were working for America, helping with research that would assist in the global fight against communism, then it was in the interest of the country that they not be brought to justice for the atrocities they committed. Anything to keep them free and working for the good guys. You have to wonder if anyone ever stopped to ask if their side was the side of the good guys. Mm, Well, the Cold War was not a war of morality. Men like J. Edgar Hoover, first director of the FBI, and Alan Dulles, first director of the CIA, set a precedent in how they ran their respective organizations. For the safety of America and to combat the growing threat of communism, anything was justifiable. As the United States entered the second half of the 20th century, Nazis were seen as the villains of the past. Communists were the villain of the present. With the rise of atomic and later nuclear weapons, one wrong step could mean global annihilation. If help in preventing that came from Nazis, well, maybe the officials who made these decisions decided it was better to live with guilt than to die with a sense of righteousness. Conspiracy theory number two states that Werner von Braun, beloved by America, was actually a true Nazi officer who knowingly supported war crimes in order to advance his own research, and that the United States assured he never sought punishment for his crimes due to his high value in the space race. Georg Ricci might have been the poster child for the moral failings of Operation Paperclip, but Werner von Braun was, for decades, the example of the op's success. For the duration of his life in America, Werner managed to escape the specter of his Nazi past. The fame and prestige as the chief architect of NASA's Apollo missions made him a popular, even beloved figure in American culture. It's hardly surprising. If anyone was going to overcome association with Nazis in the eyes of the American public, it was von Braun. But was Werner von Braun truly a Nazi? Well, the simple answer is yes. Werner von Braun was a card-carrying member of the Nazi party and was even recruited to Hitler's SS, where he achieved the rank of major. But, as was the case with many paperclip scientists, associating someone with the Nazis and providing concrete evidence that they took part in war crimes are two different things. And the U.S. officials running paperclip operated in the gray area between those two classifications. A more difficult question to answer is, was Werner von Braun an ardent Nazi? Did he know that his first breakthrough, the V-2 rockets, was built off the backs of slaves, many of whom suffered and died in the process? How much of the information that he used to help NASA execute the moon landing came from illegal Nazi research? What can the facts tell us about where Werner von Braun's heart was? Well, most sources that actually mention both his achievements as a scientist and his association with Nazi war crimes are 
at best, vague in its discussion of what Von Braun's actual involvement was. It's almost like people are afraid of being seen as disparaging of his accomplishments. Even his government biography on the NASA website simply states that Von Braun's alleged responsibility for what went on at the Middleburg camp was controversial. Being responsible for putting the first man on the moon seems to grant you a lot of credit in the eyes of the public. But let's dig into what we know and what is commonly believed about Dr. Von Braun. Von Braun's research into the technology that would eventually form the foundation of the V-2 rocket brought him to early prominence in Nazi Germany. He applied for membership to the Nazi party in 1937. Dr. Von Braun had gained prominence among the German leadership, including Hitler himself. The Nazis wanted to show him off as a public supporter of the Third Reich. According to an aerospace historian writing on Von Braun's accomplishments 10 years later, Von Braun misrepresented that fact in an affidavit to the U.S. Army during his emigration. He claimed that he had joined in 1939. And even then, it was deemed an unfortunate necessity. By that time, he was in such a high-ranking position at the Army Rocket Center that he risked losing his job if he didn't officially join the party. A simple mistake or an attempt to distance himself from the Nazis. Von Braun's assertions that he only joined the party under duress and that he only associated himself with them in order to pursue his rocketry work are all over his statements from the immediate post-war period when he was first captured by U.S. troops. At that point, with Nazi Germany in ruins, can you really blame him for trying to distance himself? Von Braun was recruited personally by Heinrich Himmler, the highest-ranking officer of the SS. As is the case with nearly everyone related to Von Braun, his membership to the Nazi party is far from black and white. Though the now very public picture of Werner Von Braun in a Nazi uniform probably didn't help with his image. He was actually arrested by the Gestapo in 1943. Himmler was seeking to consolidate his power within the Nazi regime. To accomplish this goal, he sought to gain control over the rocket production division of the German army and remove anyone he saw as a threat to his power, including von Braun. Around the same time, von Braun was growing increasingly weary of the war. An SS spy reported him for making alleged defeatist comments. It was all Himmler needed to justify imprisoning von Braun for two weeks. He was eventually released on the order of Hitler himself, who had come to the conclusion that von Braun's expertise in rocketry was too valuable an asset to lose, regardless of the political situation. To U.S. officials, this arrest was a valuable piece of intel during the process of integrating von Braun into the U.S. They used it as definitive proof that he had been a reluctant Nazi and that he was the kind of person that we, Americans, shouldn't have a problem with working within our own government. Von Braun and the Americans seemed to be on the same page about what his official story was. But then... Von Braun was linked to Georg Ricky. Remember, Ricky was the director of the Middleburg plant, where the V-2 rockets were assembled. Ricky's charge when he was tried at the Dora trials was for using slave labor to construct the rockets and maintaining a rate of work so intense that it worked thousands of those slaves to death. 
the specific link between Von Braun and Nazi war crimes has always been his association with what went on at Middlewerk. Von Braun's response to that charge was always vague. Somewhere between he didn't know and he had no power to stop it anyway. Not the best defense. Exactly. That poor defense is likely a large part of why this particular charge didn't go away. Perhaps the issue would have been settled if Von Braun had ever been formally interviewed. Von Braun was actually stationed at Wright Airfield Base when Eugene Smith arrived to interview Ricky and the other Germans in 1947. Except, when Smith arrived, he discovered that Von Braun was out of town. Out of town. But paperclip scientists required permission from a base official to leave during the initial months of the operation. So it just happened that an army officer arranged for Von Braun to be out of town during the exact time an investigator was set to interview the German scientists at Wright about potential Nazi crimes. If the government had already written Ricky off as a lost cause, they might have focused their efforts into protecting Von Braun, who was already a more valuable asset. But then again, maybe he was just taking a vacation. Author and journalist Linda Hunt surmises that Von Braun was very likely intentionally unavailable to meet Smith. Much later, a transcript would surface of a 1944 meeting at the Middlewerk facility. Von Braun, Ricky, Rudolph, and other high-ranking Nazi scientists were present. According to reports, the main discussion was about the need for more laborers, meaning European, mostly Jewish, slaves. No one present, Von Braun included, objected. It is possible to paint a picture of Von Braun as a man who, through privilege and his own genius, benefited from the Nazis' regime. He very well could have spent years in the comfort of his rocket research-provided station. By the time he would have been made aware of the atrocities occurring in order to build his rockets, it was likely too late for him to do anything. Still, given that he was deemed important enough by Hitler to be released from jail, do you think he would have had some sway? Well, we now have the benefit of the bigger picture. It's easy enough to say now what someone in Von Braun's position, which again, we can only piece together through accounts of those who were alive at the time, could or should do. But what is definite is, regardless of Von Braun's relationship with the horrific crimes happening around him, he still was part of the Nazi party and the chief architect of the rockets that killed thousands of Allied soldiers and civilians. The very rockets that made him such a high priority to the Americans. Ironically, it's likely that the clear evidence which linked other paperclip scientists to Nazi war crimes helped von Braun. Because his case was less black and white, it was likely easier to justify his entry into the country. Indeed. U.S. officials had designated Von Braun as too important to lose, regardless of what he had said or done in the past. U.S. officials said that? Strange. It's not unlike the same sentiment expressed just a few years before by Hitler. I'm sure there aren't many people who were so valued by both sides like that. It's just one of the ways that Werner Von Braun was a man of two regimes, the Third Reich and Cold War America. Despite the evidence that would have been floating around Von Braun at the time of his immigration, it really wasn't until the 1970s that the public was truly made aware of what he had been involved in. As they did with Ricky, Rudolph, and countless others, the faction within the U.S. government responsible for paperclip 
made sure to emphasize Von Braun's cooperation and contributions to American superiority while suppressing any discussion of his Nazi past. After Eli Rosenbaum saw to it that Arthur Rudolph was voluntarily deported in 1983, he likely would have gone after Von Braun next, if Von Braun had still been alive. Von Braun was dead by the time the resurgence in Nazi hunting occurred in America. But though he wasn't alive to face any potential prosecution for his alleged crimes, his reputation was seriously damaged. There's an overwhelming amount of evidence to sort through in regards to Werner Von Braun. Despite all that's available to read and research, the final verdict on Von Braun is still largely up to individual interpretation. Was he a brilliant mind, unfortunate enough to be born in the wrong country at the wrong time, who made the best of his situation and ultimately made history through his contributions to the space race? Or was he an opportunist who knowingly overlooked the suffering and injustice around him in order to advance his own station? Intent is going to be up to each individual, but I'd give this conspiracy a 7 out of 10. It's highly unlikely that Von Braun didn't know what was going on or how his rockets were being built. While that may be worthy of condemnation in its own right, I'm not sold that Von Braun was a fervent follower of Hitler's ideology. All evidence seems to indicate that Von Braun was first and foremost a scientist who would tolerate any regime that allowed him to pursue his work. Whether that makes him callous or opportunistic, is entirely up to interpretation. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, let's continue the story. It's astounding to me how much factual information there is to back up conspiracies on Operation Paperclip. I almost have a hard time labeling them as conspiracies. The main theories surrounding Paperclip are actually supported by a wealth of sources and documents. It just seems like much of this proof didn't become available until decades after Paperclip was commissioned. This raises yet another question. With all the proof that's out there confirming that the U.S. government supported known Nazi criminals after World War II, why hasn't more been done about it? Why hasn't there been more of a call for the government to admit its wrongdoing? The first answer is the simple fact that much of the proof we now have wasn't made available to the public until the end of the 20th century with the Nazi War Crimes Disclosure Act of 1998. Those declassified documents we talked about, the ones that confirmed long-dead, long-suspected beneficiaries of paperclip were in fact Nazi war criminals, well, they were made available through this piece of legislation. But there is a third conspiracy. And this one truly is an unverified and hard to prove conspiracy that details how the government was able to make deals with these men with seemingly no consequence. Don't tell me you're about to say it's the Illuminati. Not exactly, but you're in the ballpark. Conspiracy theory number three says that a group of globalists, powerful men operating at the highest levels of world governments, conspired to arrange for the United States and the Soviet Union to gain access to Nazi science in order to direct the course of scientific advancement throughout the 20th century. One of the key facts that sticks out from all we've learned about Paperclip was how President Truman was kept in the dark. Recall the operation was commenced before Truman was made aware and after he was briefed in 1944 
He refused to sign off at first over concern that Nazi criminals would benefit. When Paperclip did receive presidential approval in 1946, it was with a caveat that ardent Nazis or anyone suspected of war crimes not be permitted to enter the U.S. It was an order that was almost immediately disregarded. One online blog discussing paperclip conspiracies cites the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which revealed that over 100 paperclip scientists had to have their files altered in order to avoid security threat classification. Altered? By whom? Isn't that the central question? We can read about what happened, when and how. But so often in this subject of classified documents and government subterfuge, it's impossible to find out who specifically is responsible. And maybe that's all part of the plan. The plan of the globalists, men who knew that the conflict between capitalist America and communist Russia would last for decades, and that the moral qualms of one president couldn't halt the science that would be necessary to keep the world in check. Their goals depend on who you ask. Some believe that the ability of Nazis like Arthur Rudolph, who was one of the leaders at Middlewerk, to gain such prominent positions of power in U.S. institutions is proof of a secret group of Nazis placed in America and the Soviet Union, carrying out a mission to destabilize both nations in order to bring about a Fourth Reich. I think about how what we said earlier about Werner von Braun was simply allowed to leave Wright Air Force Base just as he was about to be interviewed. This was not an uncommon occurrence. There were several instances in the immediate post-war period when the paperclip scientists were simply allowed to leave the base to which they had been assigned. Justification seemed to be that the scientists, now safely in the United States, could not leave the country and thus had nowhere really to run. But still, the lax attitude about keeping tabs on these men is kind of astounding. That is, unless it was an intentional, organized chaos which would allow the German scientists to make contact with their Nazi handlers in other countries. This conspiracy gained traction after it became public knowledge that French officials learned that some of the Nazi scientists it had captured and employed were secretly taking orders from Germany. This led to a closer examination of the security around the German scientists from all of the Allied powers. It came out that Werner von Braun himself had been caught sending information to a German contact. But don't fall out of your seat just yet. The real story ended up being that von Braun was just trying to increase his own value to the Americans. He had buried some notes in a graveyard before his capture. His contact, General Dornberger, was supposed to oversee the recovery of these notes and then get them to one of Von Braun's colleagues, who would then give them to Von Braun once he arrived in America. Still, it's easy to see why people would be so suspicious, given the truly unorthodox way the captured German scientists were treated. If the globalist conspiracy is in fact true, what else could they want? Maybe the answer is right above you. The International Space Station, a joint scientific initiative shared by 15 countries, including the United States and Russia, is a global project meant to ensure that mankind's journey to colonize other planets is a shared international mission. The agreement that created the ISS was signed by the participating countries in 1998. But what if the idea of global forces working together toward a shared mission of expanding beyond our own world 
is far, far older. The name globalists might actually be inaccurate if this is the case. This conspiracy looks at how fluidly the U.S. and the Soviet Union stayed relatively on level with one another during the space race. The idea is that whenever the scientists of one nation got too far ahead of the other, this group would run interference, halting further development until the other country caught up. This ensured that one day, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, more than one country would be in a position to take part in a global mission to explore space. Support for Paperclip was fading in 1957. The top brass of the U.S. government saw little need to continue searching for Nazi expertise. That is, until the Soviets launched Sputnik 1 and essentially kicked the space race into high gear. This conspiracy is definitely more out there than the other two. I have to say I'm not buying it. The world came so close to global annihilation so many times during the turbulent years of the Cold War. It's hard to believe that a global controlling body would have allowed something like the Cuban Missile Crisis to get as far as it did. That is, if they existed at all. Yeah, I'm giving this one a 4 out of 10. While clearly there were secret factions within the U.S. government that were intent on covering for the Nazis it employed, that's a national conspiracy, not a global one. We've covered a lot of ground on how Operation Paperclip came to be and what it became. As for the real story... Honestly, it's not far from the truth. I think that U.S. officials knew that the war was ending months in advance. This gave them time to strategize how they'd turn the victory into an advantage in the next war against the Soviets. The V-2 rockets Werner von Braun built were the priority. The directive spread from there. American leaders became more and more paranoid that every scientist they didn't capture would be one more asset that could be used against them by the Soviets. So the U.S. recruited whoever they could, Nazi war criminals and all. Then they had to cover it up. Which they did, to protect their own assets in the war against the Soviets. And by the time the news started to break about what had actually happened, about who had been living in and working for America, it was too late. With the help of the United States government, no Nazi criminals made it to America, where they thrived. Many of them would only be outed as Nazis after they had died. The only punishment they received was a posthumously damaged reputation. Perhaps the men in the U.S. government who protected them felt that this was a fair sentence. But we'd have to disagree. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories, you can find us on Apple Podcasts. Tune in, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Tell us your favorite Conspiracy Theories on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Join us next Wednesday as we dive into another Conspiracy Theory. Until then... Remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Paracast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. 
Conspiracy Theories is written by Colin McLaughlin and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.